Welcome everyone, it's a good day to be in God's Word. I'm Joel Van Hoogen and this is the Bread of Life. Our program is presented by the International Disciple Making Ministry Church Partnership Evangelism. I'd like to encourage you to learn more about the work we're doing all around the world. You can learn more about our work by going to traincpe.org. And to learn about our missions fellowship in Boise, Idaho, go to breadoflifeboise.org. There are those who have left the church or will never enter into a church because they've been exposed to some religious hypocrite. Our tendency is to defend the truth even when those professing the truth are not truthful themselves. It's a good argument. The truth is the truth. And you can't use a hypocrite as an excuse from facing the truth without crouching down behind him. But that said, hypocrisy in the Christian faith is nothing to ignore, and there is no defense for the hypocrite. Again, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. And this passage that we're speaking of, if you were to go and look at how different individuals have approached this passage and spoke on this passage, you'll, you'll find that usually they address the issue of hypocrisy. And I, I think to some extent that's what's being addressed here. That idea, how do we avoid being hypocritical in our professions of faith? So let's look at the passage. I remind you again that Paul is turning here in verse 17, and he's now addressing the Jew. He's addressed, as I said, the idolatrous pagan in the last part of chapter 1 of Romans. He's identified the moral decay that comes upon those who will worship the creature instead of the creator, and how their images of their gods go from images of human beings, and then they become images of animals, and then they become images of slithering, crawling things that crawl upon their bellies. And then he shows how that way and that form and that degradation of worship also it's expressed in the degradation of the morality so that eventually they're walling around and they're crawling around in the dirt on their bellies in the filth of their own depravity and that's what's described at the end of Romans chapter 1 and then he turns his address to what I think is the moralist in the Roman world who knows enough to judge the right and wrong of the behavior of these pagans or the way they're behaving and they feel themselves as a result of recognizing that there is a right and wrong standard that they're somehow above the condemnation that comes upon those individuals justly and yet Paul says that by their judgment they simply prove that they know enough to be condemned themselves that they know enough of right and wrong to be answerable for their own judgments and that it doesn't make them innocent. It actually proves the basis upon which they're guilty because in some measure, maybe not to the extent these people are doing, but in some measure, they're doing the exact same things. And Paul begins to lay out and begins to bring the moralist under a sense of God's judgment as well. Remember, Paul is bringing individuals to the gospel, but to bring them fully to the gospel, he has to address all these different classes of people who found their different basis for justifying themselves or ignoring the depth of their own sin. And now that he's basically laid out a judgment upon the moralist, he's encroached into the territory of the Jew himself, the religious Jew. Because the religious Jew can identify with the moralist and can appreciate their position. And the religious Jew, though, feels that he's one notch even above that. And so because he's just a bit above even the notch of the moralistic Gentile, he is obviously protected from judgment. Paul has kind of encroached into his territory and the Jew has begun to raise up his own protest. Certainly, 
He's outside of God's judgment, he thinks to himself. After all, he's one of God's chosen people. He has God's law. He has God's revelation of truth entrusted to him. He is actually, by God's design, an instructor and a teacher to all those others in the world of the truths and the reality of who God is. And he has positioned himself to keep himself separate from all of these as well in order that he might kind of undefiled begin to teach and instruct and be a standard for the rest of the world to bear out the witness of this one true monotheistic God. In fact, he's living in the midst of a pagan society that seems to be taking over the world in the midst of that pagan society that has, has given itself over to defiling religious practices where they worship demons and they engage themselves in ritual sexual immorality. Here is the Jew who has kept himself from all those things in the midst of all these polytheists. He's maintained the standard and the worship of the one true God. You can't suggest that he is under God's judgment. That's the idea. That's the thought that's coming through here. And Paul now is going to turn to this Jew who's counting his privileges and counting his position and protesting of his separation from the world as evidence that he stands apart from the threat of God's judgment. Paul acknowledges, by the way, and primarily you have to go to Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 where Paul does this, but Paul will acknowledge the privileges of the Jew and the great position that God has given to them over all other people. He'll do this to some extent at the first part of Romans chapter 3 as well. And the basis upon which they've lived separate lives from the rest of the world. But here what Paul wants to teach them is that a good thing can become a bad thing when it's held as a self-vindicating or a self-justifying or a self-asserting thing. A good thing can become a bad thing when it becomes the basis of you vindicating yourself and justifying yourself and asserting yourself and the self. So let's look at these. And the first thing I want us to do is, I just want us to look first at the privileges that the Jews had. And as we look at these verses, I want we to think of them first in the most positive light, as good as they are, and then consider how they can turn bad. Keep your Bibles held open to Romans chapter 2. Let's read verses 17 and 18. In fact, actually, let me read the whole passage. And then after we read the whole passage, we'll then look at these verses one at a time. So here's what it says in Romans 2, verses 17 through 24. Indeed, you're called a Jew, and rest on the law, and you make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve of the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, and a light to those who are in darkness, and an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having a form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Now, let's break this passage apart. Let's look at the privileges and the great position that God had given to the Jews. And let's look at them as a good thing, but then let's consider how they go wrong. And let's look at verses 17 and 18 again. And here we see the great privilege of the Jews. Indeed, it says, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve of things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. And let's take this and break this apart even more. Indeed, you call yourself a Jew. That's the first thing we want to look at. 
the name of a Jew. It's derived from the tribe of Judah. When Leah gave birth to her son Judah, it says she praised God. And his name basically means the praise or to give praise to. And when Jacob was blessing his sons, and his sons were brought before him in Genesis chapter 49, when he came to Judah, he blessed him and he made his blessing conform to or expressive of his name, which means praise. Let me read it to you. Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 10. This is what we read of the blessing that Jacob put upon his son Judah. He said to his son Judah, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Do you say that? Your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Judah's people would be the rulers and the kings of the nation, and the Messiah would come from him, and through him all the nations would one day surrender in obedience to the Messiah. And here, this idea of being a Jew, that's name was derived from the word that means to be given praise or to be the object of praise was a glorious thing. They were to be the people of praise or to be praised because they were destined along with their Messiah to reign and rule over the nations. It was a glorious and wonderful destiny that was given to them that brought great gladness and a great sense of honor that was reflected in their name. And what I want you to do for a moment is I want you to see here that it's a good thing to take hold of the promises of God and the very names that he places upon you as expressions of what is yours and what you've inherited and what will be yours throughout all of eternity and to count them as a point at which you rise, you might say, out of the hardships and the difficulties and the low points of life to recognize that actually you have a tremendous standing in this world. The Bible says of the believer that we are a kingdom of priests to our God. The Bible tells us that one day we will follow in the train of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns to rule over the nations. And this was the sense of anticipation that the Jew had in his own name. It's a sense of anticipation that we can have as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is talking to the church that is beginning to become embroiled in petty disputes with one another. And then they're going to courts, secular courts, to solve their cases. And Paul is telling them that they ought to take care of this kind of business within their own house. That ought to be something that takes place within the house and the household of faith. And he tells them one of the reasons for that is that they are one day going to be sitting in judgment over the nations. And if they're going to be sitting one day over the judgment over the nations, should they not be able to handle these little issues among themselves instead of going to secular courts? Actually, let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3 along this thought. He's trying to raise them up to a standard of practice in the way that they live their lives among themselves based upon what is waiting for them ahead of them. Here's what he says in verses 2 and 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that you will judge angels? 
How much more things that pertain to this life? That's it's kind of good to keep in mind. When life gets hard, when it gets difficult, when you become subject to injustices, to remember that one day you're going to sit with Christ in judgment over the nations, that you're going to be with him when the nations stream to the Lord Jesus Christ and bow before him, giving praise to him, and that praise will flow over from his throne upon his people, upon us. The Jews knew that. They knew that that was their inheritance. It was a part of their very names. They were the destined and chosen people of God for praise. It's not wrong to exult in the name of promise that God has given you. But, but, big, big exception here. Be careful how you hold on to that name. It's like a title has been given to us. A wonderful title has been given to us. But you can hold on to it wrongly and as a result you can begin to feel entitled in the middle of the world as if things were owed to you. And you use the name to assert yourself. The name itself reveals the mercy of God upon us and the grace of God upon us. The mercy of God restraining his judgment upon us. The grace of God giving to us what we don't deserve. But if you find in the title a note of superiority over others, a reason to gloat in condescension over those who are now ruling the age in which you live, it can become a self-asserting thing. It can become a thing in which you begin to develop an air of condescension. You know, they say that condescension is the last bastion of losers. And the Jews had been for centuries pushed further and further to the edge of society. They'd been losing out over and over again in the political machinations of the world. But oh, did they have condescension in spades. They held on to the sense that we're the titled people. We're the people that are going to rule one day. And they took from that position a position of condescension. The Christian can do the exact same thing. This has been the Bread of Life, a ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Church in Boise, Idaho. To learn more, go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may God bless you.